You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Northway Church, not the Watermark Church. If you're a little confused, uh, we are Northway Church meeting here at Watermark Church. And uh, my name is Marshall Smith. I'm one of the elders of Northway Church. And our lead pastor, Shay Sumlin, has the week off from preaching. He typically teaches three out of four weeks, but was uh, getting some much needed rest this weekend with many of our families out at Pine Cove. Yeah, Pine Cove. Uh, In fact, the plan was that I would preach three services today um, and uh, that all of our pastors and elders would be out at the camp and they needed someone to preach and I was happy to do that. Well, things have changed. Uh, If you didn't know, a tornado hit our beloved sanctuary three weeks ago today and here I am preaching at Watermark Church, to Northway Church. Uh, At one time, our whole body gathered together, and that is really exciting. So I'm so happy to be here. I'm honored to be here. And um, so here we go. Uh, You might be wondering, are you a pastor? Um, Well, the answer to that is yes and no. I'm not a vocational pastor. means I'm not employed by the church, but I perform the same biblical role as an elder of Northway Church. Monday through Friday, you can find me at First Rate, a wealth management software company. Got some of my friends over here. Uh, And on Saturday morning, you'll probably find me reading the Wall Street Journal, keeping up with the markets, fintech news, things like that. My Twitter feed is kind of a a bizarre mashup of CNBC Mad Money with Jim Cramer and Tim Keller, SEC football, and my favorite Moores, Russell Moore and Beth Moore. (laughs) So I've been married to Shannon for 12 years, and I have four children. Harrison, that's nine. Davis, that's six. Jay, that is six. And Reese, that is four. God led our family to a home in Northwest Dallas in 2008. We were driving up to Highland Village at the Village Church, the original campus. And we've been at Northway since it soft launched in 2009. This church has loved and shaped our family in many ways. We love you, and we're really thankful for all of you. Before we jump into the book of Jonah, I do have to thank my best friend, my closest ally and partner in ministry, my wife, Shannon. She helped me understand this text that I'll be talking about this afternoon and helped shape what, uh, shape what I have to say. Well, anything that I say that's good, at least. Um, but I love you, Shannon. I'm thankful for you. All right, let's get to it. Jonah. Today is the third message on the book of Jonah. Shay taught the first week looking at Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. He gave a historical background for the book along with a strong argument for the historicity of the person of Jonah and the events found in the book. This argument he grounded in Jesus' own reference to Jonah in the belly of the fish found in Matthew 12. Shea established that the book has many themes, but one in which is important for today's text is the cruelty and violence that has defined the Assyrian culture and of Nineveh, perhaps the modern-day equivalent of ISIS. The Assyrians were known for their violence, their destruction, their humiliation of their enemies. God demonstrated his plan to save those outside of Israel for the first time in calling Jonah to go to those in Nineveh. Last week, we heard from Jonathan Woodleaf, and he tackled Jonah 1, verse 4, through the end of chapter 2. Quite quite a bit of verses there. We saw Jonah run from his calling from God that he received in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 and ultimately runs into God, finding himself in the belly of the famous fish in chapter two. We saw that Jonah descended into the depths, was delivered by God, and in doing so, 
was developed to be used by God. We saw that through the experience of mercy and grace and deliverance of God, we truly learn what it is. We have to experience the storm within to learn from it. So now we're to week three, and we'll be looking at Jonah chapter three, verses one through four. And what we will find is that God will accomplish his will, his way, through his people. So we're gonna read now Jonah three, verses one through four. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Jonah, which many people are, it's towards the end of the Old Testament. If you know where Matthew is, find Matthew and then go backwards and you'll find it pretty quickly. If you would, I'd like for you to stand with me as I read God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You may be seated. <clears throat> During my preparation to preach today, I came across a story of a hero of the faith, an unlikely missionary who had endured her own trials, setbacks, and found herself in a foreign land. Her name was Amy Carmichael. Amy was born in a small village in Ireland in 1867. Her father owned multiple flour mills. She was the oldest of seven children. She attended a boarding school and had a comfortable life. Amy's father moved the family to Belfast when she was 16, but he died two years later, shortly after he lost all of his businesses, which fell into financial calamity. In the mid-1880s, Carmichael started a Sunday morning class for those called shawlies. These were mill girls who wore shawls instead of hats. And it grew substantially to 500 people. Remember, this is a, a, a late teenage young woman. And around the age of 20, she secured donations to lease a building for a weekly gathering of 500 people. The ministry continues today as a church known as Welcome Hall. In her early 20s, she felt God calling her to Asia to work in missions. There was just one problem. She seemed an unlikely candidate for her missionary work because she suffered from neuralgia, a disease of the nerves that made her whole body weak and achy and often put her in bed for weeks on end. But stirred by the Spirit, calling her to go, she heard Hudson Taylor, founder of China Inland Mission, speak about missionary life. And soon afterwards, she became convinced of her calling for missionary work. She applied to go to China through the China Inland Mission and lived in London in a training house for women. She was ready to set sail at Asia at one point when it was determined that her health made her unfit for the work. She was denied to be sent by the, by the missions group. It was another setback. Her family situation was in ruins. She had a, a debilitating health condition. She had been rejected for not fit for the mission she felt God had called her to. But she felt that she must persevere. Amy found another missions group that approved her to go, but this time to Japan but she only lasted there 15 months. Falling ill, they returned her home. Again determined, she applied to go to India. There she remained the rest of her life. She was engaged in, an, in her notable work was really with girl, uh, young girls who specifically, those who were enslaved with the custom that amounted to forced prostitution, having been sold into the family, by their families to Hindu temples. Compelled by the love of God for his children, she dyed her skin 
in local coffee grinds and dressed in local clothing. And she went undercover into these temples to find children to rescue. She was known for having walked long distances in India's hot, dusty roads to save one child from suffering. Amy died in India in 1951 at the age of 83. She spent the last few decades of her life mostly bedridden due to her poor health after a fall, but continued writing about the missionary work that she had embarked on. She asked that no stone be put on her grave when she died. Instead, the children she had cared for put a birdbath over it with a single inscription, Ama, which means mother in Tamil language. Her example as a missionary inspired others, including Jim Elliott and Elizabeth Elliott, who wrote a book about her life, to pursue a similar vocation. Queen Mary dedicated a hospital and a home for the children in honor of Amy Carmichael and named it Donover Fellowship. This ministry continues to this day, supporting 500 people on 400 acres in 16 nurseries and a hospital that is run by the CSI Indian Church. So you might be wondering, why am I starting a sermon about Jonah talking about Amy Carmichael? Well, for one, it's an inspiring story of perseverance, of hope, of selfless love. It certainly is that. But secondly, this story demonstrates that God will accomplish his will in his way through his people. Sometimes the most unlikely of people. Amy was an unlikely candidate to make such a drastic impact for a number of reasons. First, in 1880s Britain, uh, women were considered second-class citizens. They couldn't vote. And it was decades later that they could uh, vote when she had left for Asia. This society was ruled by powerful men, and she started a church and a fellowship in her 20s in the ashes of her family's own financial ruin. She was plagued by a debilitating disease. Surely God would find someone with more strength and vigor, but he chose Amy. When the first mission organization didn't allow her to go, surely this was a sign that it was someone else's work. God would work through someone else. When her health faltered and she was sent back home to London, surely Amy would have taken this now as a sign that it was not meant to be. Surely this was God's way of telling her someone else was better equipped. Finally, making it to India, she saw society using violence and oppression against vulnerable children. Surely God would use an influential governor, a noble person, perhaps a celebrity, with an impressive voice to stop this cruelty. God chose to accomplish his will, his way, through Amy Carmichael, an unlikely missionary. I start with this story because it illustrates what I believe we'll find in the text this morning, that God has a way of using those least prepared, least equipped, the poor in spirit, to accomplish his will. And it's not just that God can use anyone to accomplish his will, but it is the process of becoming humble that prepares us to accomplish that will. So as we talk about the scriptures Um, I want to say a few things about the Bible that will be helpful to unpack this whole idea. The Bible is a beautiful and rich combination of spirit-inspired writings woven together to tell a story that culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Northway Kids, we say that the Bible is God's true word. But as we look through the Old Testament, we see different kinds of texts. We see historical narratives like Genesis and Exodus. We see the law like Deuteronomy and Leviticus. We have wisdom literature, such as Job and the Proverbs. We have poetic songs, like Psalms and Songs of Solomon. And finally, prophetic books, like the book of Jonah. Part of what makes God's word so powerful is that it uses multiple literary forms to demonstrate the truth, beauty, and goodness of God. Jonah is no exception in how it uses irony 
throughout the book to illustrate truths about God, about us, and how he uses us to accomplish his will. While most immediately recall Jonah being in the belly of the fish when they remember or think about the book of Jonah, there's so much more in the depth and the themes found in this book. In her commentary on Jonah, Joyce Baldwin points out that what perhaps is the most compelling theme that, that runs itself throughout the book is irony. Joyce Baldwin calls it, coins it, protest literature. What we find in Jonah is not a one-dimensional character who marches in lockstep with God, an obedient servant and a champion of God's message with power and authority. No, instead we see a prophet who seems to know better than God, disobeys God, and is met with the realization of his error. He obeys thinking he's learned his lesson. And as we will see in the next few weeks, he emerges confident only to succumb to his own misunderstandings of himself and of God's character. We'll see that in the next couple weeks. Why didn't God choose a more obedient prophet? Why didn't he choose a more mature follower to tackle this monumental task to preach God's word and preach against the Ninevites? Why did he choose Jonah? As Baldwin points out, it's an ironic choice. Jonah seems like a bit of an irony. Isn't it ironic? Don't you think? Yeah, I really do think. Some of you are laughing. That's probably because you're between the ages of about 30 and 40, and uh, that's like old millennials and young Gen Xers. And uh, yeah, Shay, you're probably, you count as a young Gen Xer, I think. Uh, Discussion of irony brings to mind one of the most prolific musical influences of our teenage years, songwriter Alanis Morissette, of course, whose famous song, Ironic, was released in 1995, and it, it went like this. I can't sing it. You don't want me to. But it went like this. An old man turned 98. He won the lottery and died the next day. It's a black fly in your Chardonnay. It's a death row pardon, two minutes too late. Isn't it ironic, don't you think? It's like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride when you've already paid. It's good advice that you just didn't take. Who would have thought? It figures. So I actually asked Josh about playing this song, and uh, Josh responded back that he didn't know who Alanis Morissette was. He Googled her listened to one of her other songs and replied back, she's not very good. (laughs) So I literally have the text message chain of that to prove that, so. Okay, perhaps the uh, old millennials need to expand our list of cultural influences, but the lyrics demonstrate the point I think you're beginning to see. There's so much irony in the book of Jonah. We see that in each of, of its chapters. To many who read the book of Jonah, including myself, we can skip over this irony of Jonah being God's choice and his aloofness throughout the story. Instead, we attempt to apply a moralistic lens to how we should be like Jonah or not like Jonah. Sermons in the vein of Jonah should have trusted God, so should you. It's a fairly common preaching of the Old Testament to be focused on moral virtues. Be like Moses, stand up for God's people. Be like David, slay your Goliaths. Be wise like Solomon, build a life of success. While these readings and applications may have merit, What I don't want us to miss this afternoon when reading the book is that this passage of Jonah is the means of grace that God uses to shape Jonah. We see that in chapters one and two. The seemingly obedient Jonah in chapter three, which we just read about and we'll unpack further, is shaped by the events of Jonah one and two. Here we can see the greater story unfolding in the book of Jonah. The main character is God, not Jonah. 
not the Ninevites, not the sailors, and certainly not the fish. We can see this. We see that God has been, is, and always will be about accomplishing his will. God will accomplish it his way. God will accomplish it through his people, namely Jonah. The irony is that he would do it through Jonah, the stumbling, oblivious, and seemingly aloof Jonah. I have a quote from commentator Joyce Baldwin, which you should see now. Here lies the secret of the book's continuing fascination, for readers see an aspect of self in its compelling story. What one makes of it will partly depend on self-understanding and partly on one's grasp of the all-embracing love of God that we serve. We'll be unpacking that as we go. So this is actually a long intro. Some of you are like, wait, this is just the intro? Um, Heavy setup, but we're probably about halfway through. Good news. Um, So let's look at the text. I know I've been teasing you now for about 15 minutes. Uh, And we're actually going to look at chapter 2, verses 10, the verse before chapter 3, verses 1 first. And the word of the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. We have to remember what just happened in the previous verses to understand the context of chapter 3, verse 1. Jonah has just been exited from the lowest of depths, the belly of a fish, for three days where he experienced deliverance, remembering his place in God's story. In doing this, he was developed, shaped, and rehabilitated as we entered chapter 3, verse 1. Looking at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, we'll stop there. We have quickly quickly moved into verse 1, beyond the fish coughing up Jonah, and now clearly moved into a new scene. In addition to how Jonah probably is thinking in this moment, the first question is, where is he? So I put together a map. I modified the map that uh, uh, Shay shared in in week one. You're hopefully about to see it on the screen here. Uh, And Jonah went down to Joppa, and then he went to Tarshish. Remember, 2,500 miles the wrong way. He was called to go to Nineveh. I used my business PowerPoint skills to put a fish and a person on there and noted he was just exited from a fish somewhere. We're not sure where perhaps likely along the trading routes, which would go along the northern shore of the Mediterranean, so perhaps in southern Turkey. We're not real sure. Either way, it doesn't matter. He has to at least go 550 miles to get to where he needs to go. Verse 1 also points out that this message is not the first time that it's been spoken to Jonah. If you were here the first week where you know the story, God didn't call up the next prophet in line after he did not go to to Nineveh in chapter 1 when he was called to, but instead tried to get on a boat and go to Tarshish. Jonah, having complete disregard for the direct revelation of God in chapter one, isn't forever forgotten in the belly of the fish. That would be a fitting end. Nor on the shores of some distant land for all of us to avoid. No, Jonah is re-enlisted to accomplish God's plan done his way through Jonah, the imperfect prophet. Okay, verse two. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This is almost perfect, perfectly mirroring Jonah chapter 1, verse 2. It only substitutes the message that I tell you instead of, for their evil has come up before me. That's what it said in chapter 1. There's no indication that God has changed his view or the reason for sending Jonah to Nineveh, that it's likely still, in the message given, is to preach against their depravity and their wickedness, their violence. Looking ahead to chapter, uh, verses 3 and 4. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. 
Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We should observe here that in Jonah's response, certainly shaped by his experience in chapters one and two, he responds obediently. He responds in this time, instead of fleeing the word of the Lord, he responded rightly to it. This is the opposite of chapter one in which he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Second, we see a reference to Nineveh. It's reference as a great city, Shay and Pactus in the first week. We know that it is indeed a significant city in this time, in this, in this culture. Several hundred thousand people, most likely. An intimidating city. This is the city that armies left and came to conquer other nations. The reference to three days journey that we also see referenced here in breadth is likely to mean it took one day to travel in from the outskirts of the city to the center of the city. One day to do your business within that city and one day to walk out of the city. Therefore, the verse four reference that Jonah went one day journey likely meant he was in the center of the city. Finally, we see the climax. Jonah, remember, Jonah has spent months, weeks, months traveling across a desert, no doubt rehearsing the message that God had given him. Jonah was to be God's prophetic voice communicated through God's chosen prophet. Certainly, you know, there'd be an intro, a cool story, you know, about a missionary or something to get everyone's attention. Three main points in application. Not really. The message was summarized, at least. We don't, we don't know the full extent, but we summarized as yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You know, this reminded me, if you've ever had a performance review at work, I've done a lot of those. I've gotten a lot of those. You know that when a manager wants to give you your feedback on their performance, it's common when constructive feedback, that's negative feedback, is given, that you soften the blow of that negative feedback, you know? Sometimes called the sandwich method. You highlight a positive, you quickly touch on the negative and go back to a third positive point. We don't see that here. It's simply a message. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah preaches the wrath of God for sin, no doubt injustice and harshness and brutal violence of the Ninevites. God has been provoked by this injustice and the cruelty in Nineveh. More to come on how Nineveh reacts to that message next week. But how do we interpret this, this, this text? How does it fit into God accomplishing his will, his way through his people? I want to first talk about his will. What is that? What we see in the whole of scripture and specifically here in the book of Jonah is that God is about reconciling those who are far off from himself to himself. We see that in God sending Jonah to the Ninevites, a people far off that have provoked God. We see that in Jonah fleeing God's command and God sends a storm to stop him from running away from that call. We know this because 1 Timothy 2 Verses three and four says, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. God will go to great lengths to reconcile lost sinners to himself. We see that in Jonah's life and we see it in God sending him to the far off and violent Ninevites. God is about reconciling individuals and the world to himself to be conformed into the image of his son and for this world to be conformed to his kingdom. Second, his way. What we see in the larger context of God's word, and specifically in the book of Jonah, is that God humbles the proud and calls unlikely candidates to accomplish his will. We can observe that in the process of sanctification that occurred in Jonah, in chapters one and two, that this enabled Jonah to be prepared for obedience in chapter three. 
Sinclair Ferguson wrote a book called Man Overboard about the book of Jonah, which I do recommend. He described the process that Jonah went through in chapters one and two as a means of grace. It was God's way of accomplishing his will, his way, through the breaking down of Jonah, the chapter one version of Jonah, driving him down down to the depths of humility in chapter two, that equipped Jonah for the mission of God has for him and ultimately accomplishes here in chapter three. Jonah in chapter one wasn't prepared. He wasn't equipped for the calling. God saw it fit to break Jonah down, to humble him to the point of certain death. It was God's mercy that brought Jonah to repentance. In his repentance in the belly of the fish, he declared, salvation belongs to the Lord. In Jonah chapter two, verse nine. Jonah was undoubtedly shaped by this suffering, this trial, equipped to be used in chapter three. Through the depths, deliverance, and development of Jonah, he reconciles an imperfect prophet to himself and prepares him to, be, to serve God. Third, he does it through his people. What kind of people does God choose to accomplish his will? Well, we can observe that God didn't choose the all-star. He didn't choose the prophet that was first in his class. He didn't choose the MVP. God takes a proud, self-important, self-righteous chapter one Jonah and he transforms him into a broken, humble chapter three Jonah. The chapter one Jonah didn't understand God's heart for the Ninevites. Shea mentioned they were like ISIS to them at this time. That would be the, the right correlation. Chapter one Jonah didn't understand the father God's heart for the lost, that he's about reconciling them to himself. The chapter two Jonah found himself tossed by the waves, completely hopeless and unable to rescue himself an unlikely choice. The chapter two Jonah sees that chapter one Jonah was deceived, arrogant, self-important, didn't understand, not fearing the direct revelation of the Lord. Jonah is reconciled to God and equipped to be used by the master. Don't miss this church. What kind of people does God use? He uses chapter one Jonah's, proud Jonah's, disobedient Jonah's to accomplish his will. So what does that say about us? You know, I was thinking about this. You know, there may be some kind of gene that we're born with that causes us to drift again and again to looking something like a chapter one Jonah. I have to admit, it's eerily similar to my own experience. I don't know about you, but I find myself swinging from a posture of humility then to becoming proud. Humbled again. Okay, I got this. Learned my lesson. Gotta live in my weakness Memorize 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 through 10. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Okay, I got it. Learn my lesson again. Back to cruise control. My pride and sin are behind me, right? No, life happens. My heart slowly drifts back to looking like Jonah in chapter one. You know, I'm not sure what our DNA match percentage is. They, got, they have tools for that these days. Uh, DNA testing like my heritage and 23andMe, you know, perhaps they could compare our profiles. That'd be a cool feature. Compare yourself to an Old Testament biblical figure. Uh, I think I'd have a strong match with Jonah. First cousins, a couple thousand times removed, I think is what they'd say. My friends, the only way to see Jonah emerge in chapter three is to see Jonah in chapter one that is proud, that doesn't understand God's heart for the lost, that seems to be at the same time wrapped up in pride about his chosen people. He was a prophet of Israel, but at the same time flees in disobedience to the ends of the earth. 
Jonah appears to embody both the spirit of a rule follower and a runaway. He is at once the older brother and the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Going back to that quote from Joyce Baldwin, here lies the secret of the book's continuing fascination. For readers see an aspect of self in the compelling story. What one makes of it will depend partly on your self-understanding and partly on one's grasp of the all-embracing love of God that we serve. So, we're understanding Jonah, this unlikely prophet that is used and re-enlisted by God to accomplish his will. What do we do with that? What's the application? So if God will accomplish his will, his way through his people, what does that mean for us? What can we take away from this, from this message? Well, I want to address four groups of people. First, I want to address the rule followers. Second, I want to address the Christian runaway, or just the runaway. Third, the believer, unbeliever, I, I mean. And fourth, the Northway Church body. So we're going to address those four. First, the Christian rule follower. If the thought of getting a B in your class or just in a class is depressing, if you're somewhat obsessed with beating your friends on that same Peloton ride that you keep comparing yourself to on them, if you rarely, if ever, got in trouble growing up, if you were used as an example of good behavior by your parent or teacher or boss and you smiled inside when you were, you might be the rule follower. If there was ever a chief rule follower, count myself in that category. My parents are here, over here somewhere. I think they probably could attest to this. You can interview them later. I was always one to seek, seek to hit all the marks, make the best grades, be the most independent, the teacher's pet, the coach's favorite. You get the idea. I made good grades. I found success in sports. I was admitted to Dartmouth College. I was recruited to play football. The fall started off great. I made the depth chart. I was traveling with the, with the varsity. Things were looking good until they weren't. By the end of my fall quarter, I had a stellar 2.3 GPA. By the end of the winter quarter, I learned that my financial aid would be ending. I decided to quit the football team. With so much of my identity wrapped up in hitting the mark, making others proud and achieving success, I found myself overcome with anxiety. This identity that I had put my self-worth in was crumbling, and I was depressed in that season. It was a rough first year. God's saving grace for me in this depth of not measuring up was a Bible study, a mentor who asked me to meet with him and read the Bible together in a biblical community. In our Bible study, we read the Bible together, and we read another book called Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. For an older brother in the story of the prodigal son, who had always found his way to success rather easy, grades, sports, relationships, were all pathways to self-sufficiency. God used my first year at Dartmouth to strip away this identity in which I'd put my hope. He used the discipleship relationship rooted in the reading of scripture to point me what was true about me and what was true about God and pointed me to a different identity, a different story that my hope should be in. He used a newly formed community and fellowship of other believers to help me understand the practices of confession and repentance. He used a book written by a former priest who had himself struggled with alcoholism to show me that I made measuring up to God my idol, my way of achieving the good life. What I needed more than to make straight A's and have my education paid for and define success in sports, to make others proud, 
was to know the depths of my sin and the unmerited acceptance in Jesus. I needed to know the gospel gave me a different identity, one that didn't need to hit the mark to live for the approval of others or to find worth and achievement. I needed to trade my old identity for a new identity. It was God's mercy to reveal himself to to me in this low season. It was his equipping grace that he humbled me in order that I might see the beauty of the gospel in a new and deeper way. We see an aspect of the rule follower in Jonah, a prophet of Israel, unwilling to go to a faraway land to preach against the city and a people who were Israel's enemy. He was proud. We will see this point further displayed in the last chapter of Jonah. God didn't leave this rule follower alone. He didn't move on to someone more humble, more willing to simply be God's messenger. No, it was God's kindness to break down Jonah, to humble him, and to use him to accomplish his will. If you found yourself identifying with this rule follower, I compel you this evening to look to Jesus. He was the ultimate rule follower. He broke no law, doing so in perfect humility. He himself took on your sin, even the sometimes unobservable sin of feeling pride and comparing yourselves and your accomplishments to others so that you could make yourself look better, feel better. Jesus took on the sin of the Pharisee who beat his chest and proclaimed, thank God I'm not like one of those tax collectors, one of those runaways. He died for the sin that you don't even see in attempt to measuring up. He died so that you don't have to be perfect. He died so that you could rest, to gaze upon God's beauty, to reside all of your days in his temple. The application for the rule follower is find community. You need help in mining the depths of your heart, even those things that look like accomplishment and trophies, and be humble as you learn to build an identity in Jesus instead of your resume. God has a funny way of humbling people, humbling you at one time or another, one way or another. Maybe it's already happened. Maybe it's around the corner. Find community that will walk with you. Matthew 23, 12 says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Second, the runaway. There's some of you that heard that whole story I was just talking about, and you could not comprehend what I was talking about. You have no problem breaking the rules. If missing others' expectations and breaking rules were a class, you'd get an A in that. All the Enneagram Enneagram 8s out there, nodding your heads, the challenger. Your problem isn't that you can't see the depths of your sin. Your problem is that you find yourself constantly confronted by it and its effects in your life. Taking pride in your resume, not a problem. It's being overcome with shame and regret. No need hiding it. You know it all too well. Your family knows it. Your friends know it. In fact, this shame, it can be paralyzing. You struggle listening and believing that Jesus loves you. Your life experience has taught you that you feel worthless unlovable, too far gone. Jonathan made the point last week, and I want to reiterate it. Not all brokenness in this world is the result of your personal sin. Some of you have been hurt by others, 
abused by others. You are not responsible for your abuse. What is true is that the sin that you do give yourself over to, this is true for all of us, will result in brokenness. For both those who have been sinned against and those who have been given themselves over to sin, the result of feeling shame and guilt is often the same, but the cause can be very different. The good news is, is that the antidote to shame for those sinned against and for those who have, who have given themselves over to sin is the same. It's the same good news that Jonah experienced as he tried to run from God's will. It's the same good news that Jonah experienced in the depths of sorrow in the belly of the fish. Let me tell you the same thing I told those rule followers. Cast your gaze upon Jesus. Jesus isn't ashamed of you. Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep in Luke chapter 15, verses three through seven. The Pharisees were complaining that Jesus spent all this time hanging out with sinners, tax collectors, runaways. Jesus responds with the parable, what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together and saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't repent or don't need repentance. Sorry. The good news for the runaway is that Jesus isn't ashamed of you. You aren't too far gone. Jesus, like the good shepherd, is pursuing you. Notice the good shepherd doesn't scold his sheep when he finds them. He doesn't bring them in in secret through the back door where no one can see him. No, he carries him triumphantly on his shoulders. He throws a party to celebrate that he's been found. And he says that there's more joy in heaven when one runaway has been found than when 99 righteous ones uh, do themselves. You are no longer a sheep that has gone astray, wandering about alone. Return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. The application for the runaway is to rehearse the gospel story regularly. Through community, surround yourself with believers who will reinforce this story in your life. Confess that you need to be reminded of a new identity in Christ and the freedom that being adopted as a child of God brings. We just sang about that. Believe that, like Jonah, you could be used by God to accomplish his will in his way. Third, I wanna address those who are unbelievers. You may be new to church, perhaps visiting for the first time. Today's story about these Christians, rule followers and runaways, you're actually kind of intrigued by this. A common misconception of church people is that we got it all together. We only come to church once we got it put together so we don't have to deal with any of that sin. The idea goes that we come to church in our pretty church clothes with our perfect families and our perfect marriages and perfect communities and our perfect life. Nothing could be further than from the truth. Don't get me wrong, there are many people who come to church to put on this act, but the reality is whether you've been coming to church your whole life or if this is your first time today, we need to hear that it isn't our works that measure up to God's standard that make us a Christian. 
Likewise, there's no such thing that someone has done that makes them too far gone from the love of God. Whether you find yourself identifying with the rule follower or the runaway, the same grace is extended to the rule follower and the runaway. The grace is demonstrated to us that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. He took upon the wrath of God upon himself. Jesus offers you his righteousness. Whether you have run far from God or tired of trying to measure up, find your rest in Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30 says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Finally, I wanna address what this means and, and how, what we do with this to Northway Church. If God were ever to humble Northway Church to shape us so that he could be used us to accomplish his will and his way, that time is now. God will accomplish his will in his way through his people at Northway Church. There are more stories of gospel work happening through the events of the last few weeks than I can even count. We had the testimony of our brother who was spared from the storm that testified last week and the way that this, this church has ministered to him and his family. The stories that Stephanie Fish shared last, this past week at Worship and Prayer of the family of a TJ or a Carrie teacher who we've helped get set up in a new place. Our own gospel community has developed a relationship with a woman and helping her get set up in a new home with her five children. You know, I pray that it doesn't come to an EF3 tornado hitting our church and our city, breaking down our church building for the gospel to go forth in the city of Dallas for more sinners to be reconciled to himself. But if it is, I say, bring it on. <clears throat> this morning, I uh, wanted to get prepared for this, <laughs> to speak with you. I went up to the Northway building. I walked around. I prayed. I rehearsed this sermon in our courtyard around 9.30 in the morning. And there were waves of sadness that came over me. But what came after them were waves of peace. Every tear, every parking headache, every training class postponed, every schedule interrupted, the waves of peace were that God is working in our midst in these challenges. It's okay to lament. It's good to lament. I had my own little time of lamenting this morning. And as you lament, be able to draw your eyes up to see what God is doing in this church, in this season. Again and again, he's reminding us in this season that he is reconciling sinners to himself. He is sanctifying the church to accomplish his will. He is showing us that health of our church isn't determined by the status of our building. He is pointing us to his character in this season. He is teaching us to depend on him. We have a hope that because Jesus humbled himself, he took on human flesh and took upon himself the punishment of God. He died and three days later, he rose from the dead. We don't have to fear the wrath of God, church for ourselves or for our church if we put our love and our trust in him. 
Jesus tells the Pharisees in Matthew 16, verse four, that no sign will be given them except the sign of Jonah. Jesus' life, death, and descent to hell and rising three days later is the sign of Jonah. We serve a God that is reconciling the world, the world to himself. And he tells us just a few verses later, after referencing the sign of Jonah in Matthew 16, verse four, later in, in chapter 16, he says that he will use his church to accomplish his will and not even the gates of hell will be able to stand against it. Because of the sign of Jonah, because Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, believe that he isn't done yet with Northway Church. No scheme of the enemy can thwart him accomplishing his will, his way, through his people. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have spoken through your word, through the prophet Jonah, to us, so that we could see that, Lord, you choose those who are unlikely to do and accomplish your will. You do, your way is to humble us, to show us the greater story of Scripture, that you're reconciling a people to yourselves. You're reconciling runaways, and you're reconciling rule followers. The same grace is extended to both. That grace is extended through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who died for our sin, who resurrected from the dead. This is the sign of Jonah. So Lord, I pray that you would sow these seeds deep in our heart so that we could see you, Jesus, that we could cast our gaze upon you, that we could find our rest. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.